0: Hello all and welcome to this online event titled Youth Inequalities in the UK hosted by the Atlantic Fellows for Social and Economic Equity Program, AFSI, and the Politics of Inequality Research Theme based at the International Inequalities Institute at the LSE. My name is Dr. Armina Ishkanian and I'm the Executive Director of the AFSE Program and an Associate Professor at the LSE's Department of Social Policy. I'm also co convener of the III's Politics of Inequality research theme alongside Ellen Helsper. The AFSI program is a funded fellowship that brings researchers, activists, policymakers, and movement builders together at LSE to share knowledge, insights, and hope. Putting research and practice into dialogue is central to our mission as we build a go- global community of people who are challenging inequality. We hope events such as the one today provide an opportunity for us to think, reflect and learn together. I'm incredibly pleased to be chairing today's panel, which comprises three young leaders who are working in and beyond their local communities to address inequalities in education, housing, employment and the criminal justice system. Each of our three speakers will draw on their ongoing work and share their experiences considering the consequences of inequalities on young people's lives and their well-being as well as what can be done to tackle those inequalities. This online event is being recorded and live streamed to the LSE events, III and AFSI Facebook pages and it will be made available as a video and podcast subject to no technical difficulties. For the Twitter users in the audience, the hashtags for today's event are LSE Inequalities and Atlantic Fellows. As usual, there will be an opportunity for you to pose questions to the speakers following the three presentations. Please do so via the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen, stating your name and affiliation. I'll now introduce our three speakers before handing the virtual mic over to our first speaker, Jeremiah. Jeremiah Emmanuel was raised in a single parent family in South London and started working within his local community from a young age, campaigning around issues that affect his generation. He was elected into the UK Youth Parliament and later became a young mayor within London as well as setting up a youth council for the BBC. He's the author of Dreaming in a Nightmare. This new book is a manifesto for how we can tackle inequality in the UK and improve the lives of young people. Jason Allen, our second speaker, has a dedicated career and specialism in the treatment of trauma in young people. He is recognized as a national expert in gang and youth violence in London, and currently runs Mary's, a hub for counseling, mentoring, and gang mediation in Camden, which he built from its inception in 2006. Jason's professional training is wide ranging, and is currently completing a master's degree in psychology and trauma. Finally, last but definitely not least, We have Michaela Rafferty, who is a youth engagement and campaigns organizer at Just For Law Kids, who exists to ensure young people have their legal rights and entitlements respected and promoted, and their voices heard and valued. She spent 12 years as a community worker and human rights activist in Belfast, and has worked in youth rights initiatives in Palestine, women's empowerment projects in Tajikistan, and human rights education in refugee camps in Greece. Michaela is a senior Atlantic fellow on the um, AFSI program. Welcome, Jeremiah, Jason, and Michaela to the LSE. Now, over to you, Jeremiah.
1: Good afternoon, everyone. When I was much younger than I am now, um, I knew that I wanted to change the world around me. However, I felt like my environment told me that I couldn't. However, my mother was a leading example within my life of someone that could impact the lives of others around us. She was a youth worker um, and set up a charity to work with young offenders to find ways to sort of create a stint in reoffending by teaching them different life skills. Um, as a family she got us then to get involved with the Nelson Mandela School Foundation um, a campaign group within South London um, that were promoting for a school at the heart of Brixton to be built to support the young people in the area who had to travel far distances for a decent education. This foundation led me in my life to really think about the community around me and in my early teens led me to entered the um, world of youth politics. I then became an elected member of the UK Youth Parliament, an organisation that works with hundreds of young people across the UK to create young leaders who can represent the young people from their communities and to raise different issues on a national level that need to be discussed. After a short stint within youth politics, I then adopted a world of activism Several different issues affected me and my peers, um, from youth violence to inequalities within education, um, to youth unemployment. And it was very important for me to get involved with a number of different organizations who were leading the fight against some of these issues. Um, I then went on to set up something called the Radio One Youth Council, a group of young people at the BBC who could advise them on anything from marketing to corporate social responsibility. I felt that in the business and corporate world, there was a massive gap between many of the companies that we interact with on a day-to-day basis and their consumer base, even though the majority of the time, the majority of their consumers are young people, but there was sort of no communication between these companies and the young people that they interacted with on a day-to-day basis. So after founding EMNL, which stands for Empowering and Motivating the Next Generation of Leaders, I wanted to tackle this. Um, We set up a number of different youth councils and mentoring programs and focus groups within companies such as Rolls-Royce, Nike, um, Superdry, partnered with Nando's, the Queen's Commonwealth Trust. And for me, it was really getting everyday young people to tell all of these companies you know what they needed to do to create a change in their lives um as an example uh, i remember a particular project we done in west london at a place called westway center and we flew a number of different global nike football executives to london and they were connected with everyday young people from across um, the city And these young people had an open and honest conversation with a brand such as Nike about what they need to do to sort of improve the way they communicate with young people. Um, There was an example of a 15-year-old who spoke to the head of global football, sort of informing him that the football boots um, that Nike sell are really, really expensive. And unfortunately for many of his friends, they would have to do really bad things in order to afford um, those football boots because they wanted to become footballers in the future. Um, Inequality is something that I've tried to tackle for a very, very long time now. Um, My debut book is actually titled Dreaming in a Nightmare, Inequality and what we can do about it. Um, And many people sort of ask me, why would I call my book Dreaming in a Nightmare? Why would I use such a title. And immediately, when you think about the title, many people re- refer to my environment. You know, growing up in Brixton, South London, maybe it was a nightmare, my environment and all the things I was around. But um, my environment was quite pleasant. Again, definitely surrounded by poverty and impacted by many different forms of inequality. But it was my day to day, it was my everyday life, and it shaped me for the future. The reason I actually called the book Dreaming in a Nightmare was because of the realisation that my reality and my day-to-day and the realities of me and my friends could be seen as a complete nightmare to someone else who doesn't understand what we've encountered, to someone else who's grown in a totally different environment. What is so normal to me um, and what all the problems that I was so desensitised from could be seen as a nightmare to someone else. Um, I cr- had this realization when I was sat around the table with some of my colleagues um, for a company that I done some consultancy work for. And we were talking about stop and search. Um, a- again, an issue that is often discussed in the press. And I shared my experiences. I talked about at times being humiliated because I happened to fit a description again Um, And then I shared the story of on one day of the week being in 10 Downing Street with the then Prime Minister David Cameron at a reception to celebrate activists. And then a few days later, um, ending up at the back of a police van because, again, I fit a description. And I remember talking so openly and freely about something that was so normal to me and my friends. And everyone around the table was horrified. They couldn't believe that um, I had to experience such a thing. Um, but again, it's stop and search. It's normal. It's something that the police have to do. However, I definitely felt prejudiced um, m- majority of the time growing up when it happened to myself. But to everyone else, they couldn't understand and they felt it was so unfair that this had to happen to me. So from that moment, I started to draw realisations to many different issues within my life. Um, my earliest example of inequality was when my family were hidden homeless and before the age of seven years old, me and my family had moved around about seven different times from temporary accommodation to temporary accommodation. As a child, I thought our family were one of the richest in the world because every few months we would get up, pack our bags and move into a new house. But little did I know that my mom was uh, battling in um, an immigration battle and even though I was born in Creighton, South London, due to her um, migrating to the UK, there were still issues with her residency here. My earliest example after that of inequality was getting on the bus 345, a bus route that starts in um, Peckham, South London and ends in South Kensington. And I remember getting on the bus 345. And it starts in Brixton, a place that I was very familiar with. You know, there's graffiti on the walls. The payments are really dirty. Little all around. Police sirens going up and down. The bus went from Brixton into Clapham, a place that I did know about, but I hadn't been to the other side of it. And then from Clapham to Battersea. And then Battersea over the bridge into Chelsea. And for the first time, I had seen so many cars that I had only seen in the film Fast and Furious. Um, I saw houses that we um, started to reference as TARDIS houses because they were terraced and right next to each other. But you could see the double ceilings through the window and the pavements were the exact colour as the day they were laid. And to me, um, as I think at that point being a nine-year-old, it was recognising that we lived in a city um, of two worlds. Um, And this is how I began to feel growing up, getting involved in my activism, traveling around the world, um, connecting with some of the most successful entrepreneurs on earth. And when I've met loads of different people and I'm sharing my story again, it's the stark reality of them not really understanding um, a lot of the issues that me and my friends have had to go through. There's so many other forms of inequality um, that we've seen in recent times. During the pandemic, um, one of the main examples that I think we all came across was um, the big debate around free school meals um, within the holidays. Um, And we saw amazing organisations and individuals like Marcus Rashford who really lobbied to the government um, to ensure that they can provide meals for families who couldn't afford it. Um, And again, I was that young person in school who needed the support of a, a system like that who could help my mother who couldn't necessarily afford things for us. Another example that I've seen as of recently is digital inequality. And during the pandemic, um, I actually heard a story a few days ago of a family of four who, between them with the mother working from home and the kids studying from home, had to share one iPhone in between them. Um, And many families from deprived backgrounds um, and areas just can't afford Um, the the technological devices that are needed within this time and the inequality within education. You know, I shared the example of um, speaking to a careers advisor and um, saying one day I want to become an author and I was returned with, well, Jeremiah, don't be too overambitious. And to me, being younger, that would have definitely struck me on a different path because hearing that you might feel that you can't achieve what, your dreams are. Um, However, when I look back, and I connected along the years to friends that attended Eton and Harrow, to them, their schooling was completely different. You know, they were prepped to become the CEOs, they were prepped to become the future prime ministers. But for some reason, in the school system I was in, you know, we felt limited at times. So what can we do to address some of the challenges that I've mentioned? One thing that I Um, push for a lot of the time is to look into mentoring you know positive role models are super super important for many young people who are affected by inequality you know we need to have people that they can look up to we need to have individuals who can guide young people in the education system tackling educational inequality um, I love the whole viewpoint around zero exclusions and the fact that a lot of young people who are excluded from mainstream education, who end up in pupil referral units, go down a particular route within life. Um, and another thing for me is really breaking what I've called in the past through um, one of my previous organisations, the Wall of Silence. And it's, um, the way I interpret it now is looking at different communities sort of living in two different parallel lives. Um, lines um, and how can we really break down these barriers I speak in my book about the fact that many young people from where I'm from, the only time they interact with people from upper class backgrounds are on the majority of the time three occasions. Number one, if they attend uh, Russell Group um, University or Oxbridge. Um, Number two, if they land a job. In the professional world or the corporate world in the future, maybe their boss might be from an upper-class background. And number three, for many young people, the first time they've met someone who is from a completely upper-class background is when they're facing a judge within court and they're being sentenced for a crime they've committed. Um, Inequality is still here. We need to find ways to tackle it. um, And I hope we can discuss solutions within this conversation. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Jeremiah. Thank you so much for sharing that your experiences and the work that you have done and are doing. So thank you. And we will have time for discussion. Jason, um, I turn to you.
2: Hi, everyone. Uh, thanks, that, Jeremiah. Um, real interesting stuff. I'll go into a bit about where I'm coming from. Um, I'm the director at Mary Centre. We're based in Camden, uh, which is in London. Uh, and we work with young people aged 12 up to 25 uh, and those young people that are involved in serious youth violence, uh, I- exclusions uh, that are faced up against the elements. So I'll give a bit of a backdrop how I got into it. Uh, when I was young, uh, c- came up in poverty, single parent household at the age of 15, uh, I was sent over social services, got involved uh, and I started to get put into hostels on my own uh at a young age uh I was getting put into adult hostels which I shouldn't have been so at the age of like 16 when I was just sitting my GCSEs uh I had a uh alcoholic live as my next door neighbor in the hostel on my right hand side and on my left hand side I had a um a lady that uh was involved in prostitution lovely people on a day-to-day but very very tricky for a 16 year old to navigate his way around whilst trying to go to school and commute on his own and being engaged with social services. Um, this led, led into me being becoming involved in crime um, because I didn't really see another way out. I got excluded from uh, education. I didn't get kicked out. I just got put into classrooms where they thought you was more disruptive and for you to go there. And I just kind of got sent around the mill with no one really sort of looking into what my problems were. And I didn't know how to express myself. Um, So lead on to a couple of years, 18, 19 years old, I I started to become a lot more as time went on. I started to become a lot more angry. I became involved in violence. uh, And that was my answer for things because I didn't I didn't have any answers. I didn't know why my life was like this. I didn't know why my mum was so lovely and trying to help, but she just couldn't. I didn't. I didn't understand. So I turned to violence, and and that then led to me wanting to try and make a difference for the people where I was coming from. So I was being very hypocritical. So I was trying to help the younger kids in the community where I was growing up in, um, but I was still involved in things that I shouldn't have been involved in, um, and that then led uh, for someone seeing something in me uh, for a youth program and saying, Jason there's a little we'll give you a space Uh, there's an opportunity for you to run some of your own stuff and i just started to get young people involved that were having conflicts with each other nothing too serious and just giving them time and 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 space um and then i became involved at mary's um and mary's really gave me a home um and somewhere to feel that was a home uh and one of the key things that i feel that happened with mary's is one year into my employment i was uh got caught up in a few of my past issues, and I got stabbed got stabbed quite badly um, I had to get rushed to hospital um I was bleeding out, and all of this while was whilst I was deemed by society as having a job in education, and jason 's okay because he presents well he 's a nice guy he 's a nice chap um but fundamentally, I had huge anger issues I was involved in crime. Um, And I was really, really struggling. Um, And Mary's and the people at Mary's gave me the opportunity to flourish. They didn't uh, judge me for where I was coming from. And that gave me my opportunity to spread my wings and create the project into what it is today. And I really we built the project on like a social modeling approach. So I kind of looked at what I didn't have and what I needed, and we went wholeheartedly into that 15 years ago. So I would have the building open at 3 a.m. for some of the most at-risk gang members in the borough. We'd have, um, I'd be in countless uh, police stations, be doing appropriate adult for young people where their parents couldn't make it. I would be trying to advocate for young people in meetings. And it was really for the young people. And we was able to break ground with some young people that were getting excluded from school and heavily involved in selling of drugs, involved in serious youth violence from a young age where social services and other services just couldn't engage because they couldn't necessarily give, which we understand, the level of support that we was providing. The problem that we had 15 years ago is that wider society and uh, statutory sector services couldn't fathom why we were working with these young people let alone how we was working with these young people you know you'd hear things you'd hear terms like oh those young people are a waste of resources because you're not going to get any tangible results out of them um, and you'd hear all of this type of stuff and that kind of led us to change our tact and just take our project completely underground uh, where we weren't fussed about our image uh, we wasn't fussed about getting out of there about this is what we do we just genuinely wanted to t- have an impact on the most at risk young people. This led to us being able to have uh, firearms taken off the streets, countless weapons taken off the streets and more practically mediations uh, by us working with young people for weeks, years, hours on end, no matter what their circumstances were, they'll reach out to the staff team. They'll reach out to us and say, listen, we're a bit worried about if so-and-so is about to cause this case of violence. You know, This person we feel might get kidnapped soon by this person and we'd be able to get intel like that and act it extremely practically of course we'd have our safeguarding measures in place but when you build relationships with people people tend to listen and when people tend to know that you genuinely care and you communicate with them and you understand where they're coming from they tend to listen to you so we uh hold countless mediations and those mediations can happen at our center in a park in someone's house We go into trap houses, which are like drug houses to do mediations. We've gone to county lines to do mediations because we want to be as practical as we can when it comes down to preventing serious youth violence. Um, And that's kind of where we started 15 years ago and we've built it to where we are now. And we've uh, gone a lot more into the preventative side. Uh, So uh, we're working in a lot of the schools within the borough uh, of Camden. Um, And we are looking to go further afield as well. And a lot of that is to take on, again, the young people that are showing adverse childhood experiences, the young people that are struggling in the classroom at the school. We say to the schools, even if you're going to kick them out tomorrow permanently, write us a referral today, because we will be able to start building that relationship with them and carry on with them until they're 25. And again, if you look at it, that then goes around to an attachment theory approach. A lot of these young people, they don't necessarily have the strongest attachments, whether it be with teachers or parents. Some people might try and blame the parents, but sometimes your parents are just grafting so hard that they don't have the time to be able to relate to their child. They don't have the time to be able to have long discussions with their child and what they need. So uh, we try and build secure attachments. If you look into now, say, 15 years later, we've got uh, 11 caseworkers. And we looked at the social modeling approach. So our 11 caseworkers have all come up through our project. They've all come up from communities where young people are coming from that we would work with. And they're all at different stages in their lives. Um, and it's about providing that voice for the individuals, uh, for our individual caseworkers for to be a voice for the young people, uh, whether that be on the table with Uh, youth offending probation in front of a judge with parents in front of a teacher just to support the young people to articulate themselves correctly Um, and that's roughly what we're doing as a project Um, and we work with about 200 young people a year just over 200 young people a year and it can be as intense as it needs to be or as relaxed as it needs to be so we can work with a young person for one individual, depending on what their circumstances, for five hours in one week, if not longer. We could work with one of them for one hour every three weeks, just so that they know that we're there for them. Um I was very passionate when I was younger at knowing that like, oh well, there's no one I can call. I haven't got anyone right now. That alcoholic George that my next door neighbour in my hostel at sixteen is causing like they're causing big issues. Where do I go now? Who can I speak to? So we built up a twenty four seven model, so uh, young people have access to any one of our caseworkers throughout the te- throughout the night. So there's a there's a we have a divert phone, and one of our caseworkers will pick up, whether it's three am because case studies, uh, someone's dad has poured beer over them in the middle of the night, or someone's just been murdered, and we're reaching out because we're we're scared of retaliating, and they want to be spoken down out of it. And we're fully aware that in order to have such an impact, we need to be able to be on call. We need to have sessions on, uh, whether it be Eid or Christmas Day. We have sessions throughout the year. We go and visit young people. We'll go to wherever they are in order to support them. You know, the amount of uh, cortisone that young people have got pumping through them all all the time, The, the lack of dopamine that they've got in them all the time, you know, young people need to be feeling safe and have lower stress levels. You know a lot of these young people they don't feel that they have a choice and i know that the, the newspaper builds the narrative that they do have choices but when you only know one way of living you can't fathom having a choice when you can't even communicate properly to, to, to what why the wider the society would deem being properly how can you go and get a, into a place of employment so that's kind of what we do um and I guess that kind of leads into what can be done. I feel that there's a huge problem with uh, the view of, with the view of youth violence at the moment. Um, and it has been for a little while. I feel that a lot of like government uh, narrative is, is okay, we want to stop youth violence. We want to stop serious youth violence. But then you see a lot of the initiatives that are put forward are either tokenistic six week programs, and then, then the people disappear to implement it. Uh, or a lot of the funding for instance is going towards preventative work and that is key preventative work is key however there's not much, that much work being done with the young people that are actually the risk there's loads of work being done with the young people that are um, potentially at risk but the young people that are actually at risk that are in that are getting sent to county lines that are embroidered in, in violence on a daily basis that are going through high levels of trauma on a daily basis, that don't know how to cope, there's hardly any work being done with those individuals. And the only answer for that is the criminal justice system. Then as soon as they're engaged in the criminal justice system, it's just a slippery slope thereafter. And I feel that a a change in the changing view from society needs to continue in understanding that young people that are involved in these way of lives are are from have gone through serious adverse childhood experiences, going through high levels of stress and high levels of trauma and need support. And if you look at say, I liken it to say mental health, if you look at someone uh, 15, 20 years ago, if you had depression, society deemed you as having allergies. They didn't want to know you, they thought, oh that's depression get away from me and then it took a few years for wider society to understand you know what people with depression anxiety mental health people need support and society came around and changed that view to support them and i and i i see that society is making that change with young people but it needs to continue to understand that these young people are not big bad wolves and if you speak to them and communicate with them and provide them with something that is consistent then they'll be there to support looking at your uh, root causes from poverty, from a, a sociological or a psychological aspect, will be able to make the changes. You know, and serious youth violence, it's not a new thing. Um, I'm really looking forward to what Michaela's going to go into because I'm sure the violence around here is no real difference to Belfast, no difference to your Liverpools, Glasgow's, Brussels, Paris. It's always been here, and the media is spinning a narrative that the young people are. Alien, and that they are, that there's no help for them. Um, and yeah, that's kind of roughly who we are, what we do, and who I am. Uh, thanks.
0: Thanks, Jason. Thank you for sharing that. Um, <clears throat> really good to hear from you. Um, over to you, Michaela.
3: Thank you. Um, They were both really brilliant um, presentations. I'm going to just share my slides now so that I can keep on track of what I'm wanting to say here today. Um, Can everybody see this okay? Um, So, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks so much to IIII and Alcy for having me. Um, I'm delighted to speak about my experiences as a youth worker. Um, and a practitioner and a young person growing up in um, Belfast. I'm going to use two case studies um, throughout this, one to highlight my work in Belfast and um, one to highlight the structural inequalities um, in my experience in London um, relating to young people who have been excluded from education. I'll start with Belfast, the place I grew up. Um, I studied community youth work 15 years ago after having um, my childhood in um, in Belfast and realising that there's such limited opportunities for young people who are living on, on interfaces. I wanted to learn more about this and um, so I was very fortunate to get a place to study youth work. Um, and I've worked on several peace and reconciliation projects both at home and overseas And um, last year. I came to London to do my master's at LSE um, in inequalities and social science. Um, I completed research into the impact of growing up in a divided society has on young people who have never had firsthand experience of the conflict. These young people are named locally as the peace babies um, as were born after the Good Friday Agreement. Um, And I look particularly at how their ability to be able to connect to their future. As of limited time today, I can't go into the history of the North of Ireland, it would be absolutely impossible to even attempt to cover this in 10 minutes. But for those who aren't aware, following British occupation and a civil war lasting over 30 years, the North of Ireland has been in a peace process for the past 22 years. The brutalities of these years of violence have been replaced by a divided society, which many argue is a failed state. For some, the peace process has brought great prosperity, Power-sharing politicians use identity politics to legitimise their existence and secure their support. Some who can afford it have moved away from interface areas, and many have the privilege of thinking the dark days of the conflict are behind us. And now tourism is one of the fastest growing industries across the north of Ireland, which is quite bizarre whenever you think about how much Belfast and the north of Ireland was avoided in the height of the troubles to the outside world. But what's often ignored as tourists are brought around the peace walls and politicians are held as leading examples around the world is just how the dysfunctionality of a divided society is impacting on the next generation. As you can see from these statistics, religious segregation has been institutionalised with most children and young people educated separately from their peers of the other religion. And housing being segregated, not only by religion, but also by class with 98% of public housing being segregated, creating a siege mentality, particularly for those who don't have the capital to decide where they want to live. Again, this is a huge factor in waging inequalities between young people who grew up living with the visibilities of the troubles day in, day out, and those whose families are not living on interface communities. There's been a 33% increase over the last two years on the number of children in households on the housing waiting list. It's also a huge religious inequality continues to affect social housing. In North Belfast alone, 82% of those registered as homeless come from a Catholic or nationalist background. Out of the one in four children living in relative poverty across the north of Ireland, have at least one person in the household in employment. This shows the growing number of the working poor and the failure of the neoliberal project. There has been a 90% rise in the number of households across the North claiming universal credit since the onset of the COVID-19 crisis. So this figure of um, children living in poverty is set to rise. Tragically, 3,600 people lost their lives during the Troubles but a terrifying fact is that almost double that figure of those who died through 30 years of conflict have died from suicide since the beginning of the peace process With almost 6000 people taking their own lives in the last 22 years intergenerational trauma and the impact of living in an abnormal society proved factors when the young people I interviewed spoke about mental health and the crisis of fascism there's only fifth of the health budget goes to mental health. This is the lowest in all of Britain and in the south of Ireland. The level of institutionalized segregation and unstable political climate creates many vacuums. And some of this is filled by paramilitary groups who still have a stronghold over many working class areas, particularly in loyalist communities. These gangs survive on fear, limited opportunities for young people, and identity politics, whipping up hysteria when it suits the interests of politicians. In the recent spell of violence from the loyalist communities in April of this year in response to the Brexit debacle, the Northern Ireland Children's Commissioner said this violence has been caused by criminal exploitation of at-risk children and young people, adding that behaviour of some adults and contributing to the actions of the young people among the child abuse. When we look at how entrenched division is in every structure of society in the north of Ireland, I would argue that each power holder who continues to create and perpetuate these divisions holding the north in a state of limbo between the promise of peace and the constant threat of war are responsible for these acts of child abuse, including the great and good, we are employed to keep these divisions in place and profit from it while our children and young people suffer the consequences. I think this is a telling quote from one of the young people I interviewed during my research um, and really demonstrates how damaging and oppressive a divided society is on the well-being of young people. Being told the situation is normal when it is not normal makes you feel like you're the one going mad. The conflict has left trauma behind, but the divided society we live in continues to traumatize our young people. In my experience, children and young people want to integrate, and when they're given the chance, they thrive, when they're exposed to diversity in a safe and nurturing way. However, the systems in place make this process of integration the exception and not the norm. A peace process that doesn't have social, economic and cultural rights at its core, it's nothing more than a sticky plaster over a deep wound. I'm going to move focus now to look at London and I'd like to share an example of how young people impacted by inequalities are using their experience to hold power to account. Just for Kids Law, a brilliant organisation I have the privilege of working with, we work with and for children and young people to hold those with power to account and fight for wider reform by providing legal representation and advice direct advocacy and support, and campaigning to assure children and young people in the UK have their legal rights and entitlements respected and promoted, and their voices heard and valued. With raising levels of deprivation, cuts to public services, causing severe pressure, our work now is more important now than ever. I, work, I will talk about a campaign I am working on with young people who have been excluded from the place that the majority of kids spend a high percentage of their childhood, not school. While the right to education is recognised as a child's right across the world, in England, seven thousand eight hundred and ninety-four children are permanently excluded from school each year, and four hundred thirty-eight thousand, tw- <laughs> a massive number. I can't even say, um, experience fixed-term exclusion, and that's said to be anything from one day to a maximum of 45 days. However, young people I'm working with have been given fixed term exclusions to last the whole academic year. In 2016, the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child made a clear recommendation to the UK government to address the disproportionate use of exclusion for particular groups of children. Despite this, in the last five years, there's been a 41% increase in the number of fixed term exclusions given in London. What's deeply worrying is that certain groups of children are disproportionately excluded from school. These statistics on disproportionality show the underlying injustices and inequalities that lead to school exclusion. Young people already facing vulnerabilities and barriers to participating positively in society due to the oppressive structures and systematic failings are let down even further through their exclusion. The fact that children with special educational needs are six times more likely to be excluded than their peers, shows that the current education system is not fit for purpose, as it is ignoring the variety of needs our children and young people have. The fact that children on free school meals are four times more likely to be excluded from school, show the direct link between poverty and exclusion. Children whose needs are already not being met due to government cruelty are being further punished by being excluded from what could be a vital safety net. The fact that children and young people from Black Caribbean backgrounds are three times more likely to be excluded over white British children and that Irish Traveller and Roma children are five times more likely to be excluded than white British students shows how the cold face of institutionalised racism presents itself and pushes children and young people to the margins of society. And finally, the fact that children involved in child criminal exploitation are more likely to be excluded shows the feeling of a system which should be a safe, nurturing place where young people are free from harm. But for many, this just isn't the case. There's also a strong link between exclusions and further exploitation, which many of the young people I'm sure that we all work with are know only too well. Another huge concern is the lack of power children, young people and their families have in school, the school exclusion process. This change in the, in the law in 2012 shows how exclusions are weighted in favour of the school with the appeals process being virtually impossible for families and young people to navigate. The fact that there's no legal aid in most cases of appealing a school exclusion show just how much of a disempowering process it is. The absolute honour of working with young people who are experts by experience, young people who are going through and exclusion or have went through an exclusion they bring together their experiences passions and skills and form a steering group to campaign for wider reform by influencing policy and practice and the campaigners use their experience to hold power to account by highlighting the feelings of the education system which excluded them and present solutions to create an education system that works for all these are just some of the examples of the things that the campaign group have created in their uh, short time together. But above all of this, what the, the space creates is a sense of belonging and a purpose and uh, a, acknowledging that the young people are much more than their experience. These are some solutions that our campaigners have come up with. i our urge any policymaker, teacher, governor, decision maker to listen to them. Who better to know what's needed to change than those who suffer the consequence of its failings? And a huge part is is education. Many young people didn't know their rights through their whole school exclusion process and only whenever they came to Just for Kids Law, maybe to get legal representation or to join a campaign or to have an advocate, they were told that they were actually entitled to rights. So to me, the fact that many young people don't even know what their rights are shows the oppressive structures that we're living in. Personally, I think we need to look at a a complete overhaul in in systems where young people and children's well-being, needs and passions are put before profit and productivity, greed and power. Maslow's hierarchy of needs explains what's required before a person can reach their full potential. If we continue to operate these oppressive systems, we are continuing to lose out on the brilliant potential of our children and young people.
0: Thanks, Michaela, excellent presentation, all three speakers. You've given us so much to think about and to discuss. Um, before I open, and we've already got lots of questions in the q and um, I wanted to give the speakers an opportunity if you wanted to reflect on any of the other speakers' points or share um, anything um, before I turn to questions.
2: Yeah, I, I, I thought, obviously, it was just amazing hearing from both speakers, and I just think that it was especially crucial um, what Michaela was talking about, sort of like the the school exclusions and the spe- young people would say special educational needs, and the direct pipeline that uh, that, that leads into, um, and you're then exposed to young people are then exposed to the elements outside, and it is you're then you're then exposed to grooming, and you're then given. From an, a young person's perspective, an opportunity—you know—you're given an opportunity because school is not giving you an opportunity, and then that, that that just triggers the whole change in understanding of what what choices we actually have, you know. Um, but no, I thought that was really powerful because uh, the the pipeline is is clear to see.
0: Thanks, Jason. Michaela, do you want to respond or Jeremiah?
3: Uh, Absolutely, I completely agree and I think that what was a common thread between all of our presentations to me was the the isolation that young people are facing in what has been deemed as the norms of society and that so many young people are actually living on the margins of society. So if that's where the majority of young people are, we really need to look at the systems that push them there as opposed to trying to get those young people to fit into the systems. are in existence which are clearly failing the young people Um, and I think that Jason's point was spot on around the or maybe it was Jeremiah sorry I'm getting confused Um, but somebody made a class point about the only time that a lot of young people um, are are seeing somebody from the upper classes is whenever they're stood in front of a judge and I think we need to acknowledge that a high percentage of decision makers and power holders are coming from the elite class Not even just the middle classes, they're coming straight from private school where they have not been exposed to any of the realities that young people whose lives they really have in their hands um,
0: are are experiencing. Um, I thought that was a very powerful point. Thank you. Yeah, I think all of you talked about, you know, not being seen, not being heard and the importance of relationships, reliability, having someone care, you know, and, and, and take that into account. And I think mental health was really something you all talked about, which, which was key. Jeremiah, did you want to respond as well before I open it up to questions?
1: Um, I, I, I could definitely see the link um, in all of our talks between education Um, And I wanted to share an example of a school in South London called the Dunraven School, and they actually put this to the test by um, creating a policy saying zero exclusions, we're not going to exclude any of our young people. Mm. And what actually happened is the teachers never gave up on the young people, Um, they tried their hardest to identify the underlying issues that would contribute to what they normally call low-level, mid-level disruption within classes um, and really just delving into some of the surrounding issues rather than just identifying a young person, saying what you've done is wrong and then referring them to a pupil referral unit. And I think another massive problem with schools in the UK, um, and it was something I noticed as a student, a lot of schools would get rid of the young people who were sort of like easily distracted so that by their GCSEs and exams, um, the exam tables sort of reflect differently um, if they have young people who they feel cannot um, get the best grades. And that for me was just terrible seeing that um, throughout my community because it was just so blatant that that was one of the reasons why young people were getting excluded. And even to permanent exclusions, in my year group, in school, um, anyone who went to a pupil referral unit after a permanent exclusion either fell into the criminal justice system or they unfortunately lost their life due to youth violence. So that, for me, and I touched on it in the book, was a shocking revelation when I actually realised that um, and more needs to be done to really tackle, you know, educational inequality. Thanks,
0: Jeremiah.
2: Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Jason. So, I mean, um, yeah, I, it was just sort of as was well following on to a bit that both uh, talkers were, were saying, uh, Jeremiah and uh, Michaela, around um, uh, immigration, inequality, and institutionalized, uh, institutionalized racism. And I feel that this we, we see. I'm sure everyone on this panel knows the impact it's having on our on our school children and in the workplace uh, and all around society. And the fact that it just gets ignored so often um, plays into the narrative. Um, And if you look at, say, uh, other cities, race race isn't uh, seen as important in the news when it comes down to serious youth violence outside of London. You know, if you look at serious youth violence in all of these other cities that it's happening in, race isn't an issue. However, in London, it's deemed young black males are causing the violence. But if you look at the statistics uh, of of how many young black males there are in the city of London versus the amount that have been involved in serious youth violence. It's, it's, it, it's nowhere near comparable to, say, if you look at your Glasgow's or even, I'd imagine, your Belfast. Um, and this is really crippling so many young people from a young age, not only just, say, racism, but classism that's happening. And it's all playing into it. And it doesn't help when you have the, the people that be... Putting out policies and papers saying, oh, yeah, we've done a check on it, and oh, yeah, it doesn't exist. In institutional it doesn't exist. We can't find anything to do with it. Um, but yeah, continuing to highlight things like that, I think, is important for our school children.
0: Thanks, Jason. Thank you all. Um, we've got lots of questions. Um, some are directed at certain people, and some are not. So I'm going to take three and give um, one each um, to each of our speakers. So I think this is a question for you Michaela and I'll ask all three questions and then please uh, you respond. So it comes from Luna Glucksberg who's a staff at III, a research fellow and thanks everyone to the wonderful presentations. She asks what do you suggest instead of exclusion for children who are excluded? And she's asking this as a wife of a secondary school teacher who's worked in both mainstream and PRU, who is dedicated to his students who often create deep bonds with him. What to do when students so deep in gangs that violence is their way to interact with teachers? How do you keep everyone safe? So, I'll, um, and if others want to come in on that, but I'll ask that to Michaela. To Jason, um, I have a question from Lakita Upal, a trainee, counseling psychologist at London Met University and she's got questions for you saying um, you spoke about Jason having to go underground to get away from the whole hard to reach label what do you think are some of the bigger social barriers to accessing counseling for young gang-associated people? So what are the barriers to accessing counselling? And do you think counselling as a service is missing for these young people? So what are the barriers to that? Um, and to Jeremiah, a question from Isla X. What is being done to fund youth services? Because there's been a lot of loss of central funding. About 95% of the West London since 2010 um, regeneration projects, um, so there's been money, but has has the youth parliament petitioned government to fund more youth services, statutory youth services? So who would like to start first? Maybe Michaela, because I gave you the question first.
3: Sure, yeah. Um, thank you. I think that's a great question, and... Um, One that we speak about a lot in the campaign. And like I said in the presentation, I think that we just need to look at the young people who have been most affected um, to come up with the solutions. Um, And a lot of them talk about if if frontline staff and in terms of the teaching staff and people who have seen every day maybe had an element of understanding as to what their lives were, um, they would be able to put measures in place. Um so suggested that um, teaching staff go through trauma-informed training, that they look at um, mental health training, that they look at what young people are dealing with within society. But obviously, in order to do that, there needs to be more resources put into schools. You know, it's very understandable that teachers are overstretched and under-resourced. Each school really should be, whenever we look at the, mental health statistics amongst amongst our youth population. Why do we not have youth workers and counsellors and therapeutic staff within schools whenever that's, that's where where sh- children and young people are spending most of their day? But again, that requires um, funding. So I think whenever we kind of look at these things, we need to look at it on so many different levels. We need to look at the um, lack of funding that has, has actually been taken away from the education system. That absolutely needs to be... Um, we need to be pumped back in and even more as well um, and I understand that there's uh, there's pressures under teachers to keep um, young people safe and especially whenever there is um, young people who are involved in gangs we need to really look at a, a joint up approach as to why are young people being involved in gangs how can we look at community how can we work with community organizations and schools um to be able to present a joint-up approach. We, we, as the professionals, need to get better at looking at the solutions um, in order to protect these young people and see these children and young people as children and young people and as a product of their environment um, as opposed to continuing to push push them um, to to the margins of society. I think that there's something huge about decanalising the curriculum as too and looking at what does our schools actually teach and what does it perpetuate in terms of the institutionalised racism, um, that is quite evident in the disproportionality.
0: Thanks Michaela, over to you Jason.
2: Uh, first of two questions, I think the first one was uh, what are some of the bigger social barriers stopping young people uh, engaging in counselling. I think some of the social barriers are the same for adults. Uh, some people deem it as a sign of weakness trying to engage in, in counselling. There's a stigma surrounding it. You know, I know that when I started doing counselling for my personal growth about nine odd years ago, I didn't tell anyone about it. Um, but also I feel what's more important at the moment is the huge disconnect between, say, who's providing the counselling. There's not enough counselors or therapists that have an understanding of many of the issues that the young people of today are fi- are are going through. Um, and, you know, I, I feel that for a young person to sit down, if I'd, I, an example, sorry, I'd done a training course for one year at the Tavistock in Portman on, um, I can't remember the title of it, psychological therapy for children, right? There was about 40 people on it. Out of those 40, there were only three males and there was, I think, out of the forty, I think forty-six people there were white. Out of the forty, so thirty-six were white. Now, when you're dealing with inner-city young people, uh, you're dealing with a lot of young boys that have not grown up with. I think Jeremiah spoke a, um, a lot about it, about sort of the, the role models and being able to look up to someone. When a lot of this is escaping, sort of a lot of our young men they need a lot of male figures. So counselling as well can be, uh, there can be those social barriers. You know, we uh, offer, we've offered some of our young people a counselling service uh, over the years and they've always said, no, Jason, you're our counsellor or Emil or one of our cases, so you're, you're our counsellors, we do therapy with you because we understand it. So that's some of the bigger social barriers. I think that there needs to be more people that are representative of the communities that, young people are coming from. Um, and then I think the second question was uh, the counselling, is counselling- mis- okay, so if you look at, say, how you can even access counselling or therapy, the NHS's answer is iCope. Okay, so it's a service called iCope. I went through iCope when, uh, as I said, quite some years ago. The weight in this is ridiculous. You know, if you are a young person going through serious levels of trauma, even if you're just a young person that that is experiencing forms of depression, the ICO waiting list is ridiculous. And that's because, as we know, the NHS is hugely overrun. You know, there's cuts everywhere, and I totally get that. Um, But that that can provide a breakdown. But as well, if you look at some of the um, more powerhouse organisations that provide therapy, We've had conversations with them over the year about trying to implement things such as crisis, uh, crisis uh, contingency therapy sessions. So in the part, if you look at, say, the past four years, 15 of our young people that we've engaged with have been murdered on our project. Um, and that's a lot of young people, friends and families that need forms of therapy and counselling. And it can be extremely uh, overwhelming for just one organization to handle that. Um, And when you're then talking to, say, other therapy organizations and counseling organizations, and it has to be on a Monday at 10 o'clock, and if you miss that session, see you next Monday at 10 o'clock, it's ridiculous. You know, we're, we're dealing with young people that don't necessarily want to sit down in one place anyway, and you're providing them with inappropriate unrealistic boundaries in in therapy sessions and counseling sessions so i feel that that as well is a huge break a huge breakdown and we provide that within our 24 7 model of if you need us we're there for you and we'll make it happen you and when you're dealing with young people you have to be flexible i feel Um, and yeah i think i answered the question you did
0: yeah you did thank you i'm going to hand things over to jeremiah and then i'll take the next round of questions
1: Um, Yeah, um, very similar to myself when I was growing up. Um, The majority of our youth services within my community were cut Um, and it was devastating on young people. Um, In my book, I literally write about the local McDonald's becoming our new youth club because we had nowhere to go after school. Um, And more needs to be done to fund youth services. I feel one thing to note is um, that when it comes to the debate around youth clubs, one thing that I do often talk about is the fact that we also need to find ways to adapt um, due to the fact that youth clubs um, were very, very active some years ago. So many young people may have adapted. They may need some other forms of um, youth service support um, and it's up to us to find ways to support them. In terms of um, central government and funding, um, one thing that I always draw to as an example There's a political commentator called Kenny Amathadon, and in 2012, he wrote something called the Kenny Report, which was all around gangs and serious youth violence. Um, And it actually mentioned that um, one murder investigation could cost up to a million pounds to undertake. Um, If we look at the criminal justice system and actually young people who are in custody within prisons. You know, it costs, um, I don't know the specific number, but around five figures to house a young person for a year within prison. Um, The thing for me, I always believe in preventative measures. I'm I'm a firm believer in early intervention. And why don't we invest some of this money um, that we would actually use on a worse side of things? and find that money to invest into communities and into young people, um, so that the cycle doesn't continue. Um, in in terms of the UK Youth Parliament, um, again, it's a youth organization, um, so we don't actually make any policies. But in the years that I was involved, we um, campaigned around a number of different issues. Um, and a lot of the times, to be honest with politics, I feel my experience of working in the political space um, We have all of these conferences, you go down and meet politicians, Um, you join parliamentary select committees and give evidence. And a lot of the time it's talking. And a lot of the time when I've done my talks in the past, I end it by saying change is a word, but we need it to become an action. And that's because a lot of the time when it comes to politics, there's a lot of talk and nothing actually happens. And with a lot of politicians, when it comes to problems that affect young people, they think about the problems that affected them themselves when they were young people. And that was maybe 25 odd years ago. Um, But more politicians really need to understand a lot of the issues that are ongoing. They really need to get to the bottom of what is happening to young people. And I think this um, pandemic is actually the perfect opportunity as many forms of inequality have been highlighted during this period of time. Thanks,
0: Jeremiah. Thank you so much. Um, I've got lots of questions. I'm going to take as many as I can. We have a question for Jason from Grace Wild, who's a LSC student. She says, How can we create an alternative, progressive narrative to counter the right wing idea of problem families while also acknowledging the complex legacy of systemic injustice and the revolving door? She says, I'm thinking about how lots of young people in care um, talk about coming from care families who have always had heavy social services and criminal justice involvement. So how do you shift the narrative in the media? How do you tell a different story? Um, A question to you, Jeremiah, from um, Rachel Middlemas, who's asking about the role of Um, The private sector, because you mentioned about talking to corporations and so forth. How can commercial organizations and markets respond to the issues you're describing? What can the private sector, you know, what could it do? What should it do? Um, I just want to put in there that sometimes corporations can start with paying fair wages and not doing zero hour contracts, but I'll stop there myself. And Michaela, a question um, to you about um, when you're looking at this issue, do you also, and this is a question um, from Emma, do you, what do you hear, Emma Garrity, working with young people, Michaela, have you ever shared... um, what they or ha- do they share? Have they given you solutions? Um, and what are they saying? So the the younger people than you. So Jason, I'll start with you.
2: Um, so how do you change the narrative? I mean, it's very difficult when w- you can't even change the narrative in the media and the government that uh, that racism exists such a big problem like that so I mean changing the narrative of that families problematic families and engagement say from social services are a problem you know where do you start Um, again if you look at say upper class families right upper class families that say children say that are at boarding school um, there's issues huge issues that come from that Huge issues where f- families need support in 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 that children that are in boarding school also need things such as counselling, mentors. But it, those problems are not highlighted as a problem in society. It's only the lower income, the poverty, the 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 young people that are getting kicked out of mainstream education that are the problem. Other ways of life, other classes are not a problem uh, in society. It's it's a not a problem. It's not a problem. Say. In Camden Town, the problem is the drug sellers, as opposed to the wealthy um, architects coming into Camden Town to buy the drugs from the young people and funding the whole trade. That is not the problem, uh, is it? You know, uh, from the government's side, the problem is the uh, the young people, their families. So, changing the narrative. There's not really an answer for it, but I feel that more meetings like this more discussions like this and more people having a greater understanding that not all families are the problem you know you have some families that we work with where parents may be uh drug abusers but they want if they had a bit of extra help they'd be able to do way more for their child you know um if you have a a parent that is struggling just on how they can communicate with their child Having a mediator within the family can help them. And then next thing you know, loads of problems are alleviated. So changing the narrative is very difficult when, as I said, you can't even change the narrative in the government and the media that racism exists. Um, So, yeah.
0: Jason, thank you. Jeremiah?
2: Um, So
1: the private sector, for a long time now, I've actually run my social enterprise by working with a lot of different corporations um and i think one thing we've sort of discussed here today is the fact that many people from sort of like different backgrounds um sort of higher um social economic backgrounds um really can't relate to a lot of the issues that young people have to go through especially in a place like inner city london as an example um and i remember sort of doing a, a talk at facebook um, and I tried to look at it from a totally different perspective. And it's the fact that a young person who may have unfortunately lost their life due to youth violence might have actually passed away wearing Nike trainers. They definitely had WhatsApp on their phone or an Instagram account. You know, they definitely drink Coca-Cola. So these are brands that interact with all of these people on a day to day basis. So how can the issues that all of these people are going through be overlooked? Um, So that is why I've been a massive believer and I've really pushed for a lot of corporate companies to think about ways they can impact different issues that might not necessarily be familiar to them. Um, It might not necessarily fall in line with their brand and their image, but their consumer base, again, are people that are being affected by all of these issues. Um, So I I think the responsibility is drawn there. Um, I think another thing is definitely to look at it from the employment perspective. Um, And that's another thing that I've done beyond just um, talking about how they can give back. How can you support young people from disadvantaged backgrounds? And I think when we say the word diversity, um, it's heavily a lot of the time based on ethnicity and background. Um, But one thing I've really pushed for companies to adopt is looking into lower social economic backgrounds. And that's for a number of reasons. One of the reasons being there are many young people that I know that look like myself, uh, um, families are from the same sort of country, but they've gone to Eton and their families have done really well for themselves. Um, And I also know young people who are sort of white British, who have grown up up north in maybe, let's say, Middlesbrough, um, and have had a very similar upbringing to myself. So for these corporations, um, when looking at diversity, how can we provide opportunities for those young people um, at the lower end of their socio-economic backgrounds? How can we support young people who have a lack of opportunities, who haven't been given a platform to um, move forward um, well in life, Um, And how can we take that diversity a step um, forward um, so we can provide opportunities for as many young people as possible?
0: Thanks so much. Thank you, for advocating for an intersectional approach of how we look at how different identities intersect and how people experience things. Jeremiah, thank you. Um, Michaela, to you.
3: Yeah, in terms of solutions, um, I think that it's really important that we recognise that we meet young people where they're at. So... If a young person is trying to survive without a home, we need to give them a roof over their head. If a young person is living in poverty, they need to have food at the the table. We need to remove the barriers that are being placed on young people so that we're able to actually give them a footing and being able to participate in society. And Maslow's hierarchy of needs talks about that, that first initial need being our basic needs. Whenever our basic needs aren't met, yet we are expected to function in society, and and reach our potential and learn skills and all of these things we're really setting our our children and young people up to field, and the solutions in in terms of school exclusions and young people who have been excluded you know a lot of them when when reflecting back on their exclusion are saying if only people had if the teachers and the caregivers had presented me with solutions at that time um, have had listened to me, had seen the whole of me and what I'm going through, have given me a chance. For many, they were the, the process was so disempowering, they didn't even know what was going on. They were in a fixed term exclusion that all of a sudden became a permanent exclusion. And during that process, they had no time to represent themselves, to know what their rights are in it. They're in the receiving end of it. And of course, as we know, if young people are in isolation or excluded and require that sense of belonging, then they're much more vulnerable to exploitation. And so the cycle continues. Um, and I think it, it Jeremiah's point earlier on around what we accept as our normal is something really powerful that we that we have to remember, that there is such a thing as a self-fulfilling prophecy. And if the dominant narrative around is telling these children and young people that this is where their ambitions are at, um. Then, then it's it, it's very understandable that that's where a young person <laughs> will live to. And only through removing barriers and putting support in place will young people actually be able to realise they have an ambition and and being able to get support around what that ambition looks like. Um, but without that, the dominant narrative is is, is very easy um, just to take over.
0: Thank you. We've got so many questions, but we're actually out of time. Um, I just want to say that there's been incredible um, appreciation for all three presenters um, in the chat, in the Q&A. People are asking for more. They want to hear more from you all. I think we may need to have another session, Um, but we are out of time. And I did want to give you all just a very 30-second, you know, quick um, ending before I tie everything to a close. So I will start with you, Jeremiah. I'll go the same order that you presented. So Jeremiah, Jason, and Michaela.
1: Um, I'm gonna go back to what I mentioned that I normally say at the end of talks. And again, change is a word, but we need it to become an action. You know, um, it's been an amazing discussion and we've really drawn onto inequality and some of the solutions to how we can combat it. But um, let's all move forward and um, try and find ways that we can really tackle it. Let's keep the conversations going. Um, and let's really, um, if, if for example, you still don't understand or um, you wanna learn more, please research, please understand what is going on in the UK and what can be done to really bring change about for all of these young people.
0: Thanks so much, Jeremiah. Thanks for being here with us today. Jason,
2: to you. Yeah, thanks for uh, providing the platform and uh, having discussions like this. And and more of this stuff is uh, definitely needed to create more awareness and understanding around the issues. Um, Sima, I I would just say that um, we have a saying that we never want to run before you can walk. And I feel that when you're dealing with young people and systemic issues, you should never try and run with these problems. You should, ne- you should always just try and walk through what is happening. And this ethos has got us to where we are today. And I feel that things need to be meticulously discussed and walked through. And that's where systemic change will happen.
0: Thanks, Jason. Thank you so much. Really good points. I think you're raising and thank you for the work you're doing. And lastly, Michaela.
3: I just want to highlight and I think it has been highlighted today that we didn't get in these level of inequalities by accident that the, the intentions have been done to create these um oppressive systems that we're operating in. So um I think that there's a huge job in holding power to account um and a real need for a joint up approach. This the, the passion here today is is really inspiring. Um and I think that we we really need to raise these the elevate the voices of the young people and the children that we're we're working for um, and create these platforms um in a joint up way um moving forward. And that's the only way that, that we'll we'll get to see the change that's much needed.
0: Thanks, Michaela. Thank you again for being here with us and sharing your perspective from London and Belfast. Fascinating talk. So thank you also to all of you who participated in the audience and for your questions and my apologies for not being able to pose all of those um, questions. Thank you once again to our three wonderful speakers, amazing leaders who shared with us their experience and their ideas and their um, knowledge. If you would like to know more about the Atlantic Fellows for Social and Economic Equity Program and the International Inequalities Institute, please visit our website. You can learn more about our work and our events and you can follow us on social media. Thank you again, everyone. I'm sorry we ran over a little bit. Um, and until we meet again, virtually or otherwise, thank you and goodbye.